morning, Christ Presbyterian Church. If you could turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. I've been preaching through James as I've had the opportunity to be up here with you guys. If you could turn there. There we go. So we're just making our way through James as, um, as I get opportunity to preach up here. And we are in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. If you could turn with me there or it should be on the monitor as well. May God bless the preaching of his word. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits, of his creatures. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that this morning you would teach us your truth and your truth would set us free to love and serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is going to be a little bit controversial, so please don't hate me. Please try to have an open mind here. This is not the view of this church or the PCA in general, Um, but I do not like cats. Don't like cats at all, and I know there's going to be some haters out there. I actually have a reason for not liking cats. I actually used to love cats. At one time, I had four cats at one time when I was growing up, and I loved them, but then something happened. Um, Near the end of my college uh, run, I had some roommates that were friends of friends, and one of them had a cat that he brought into the house, my friend Greg. Um, But for some reason, this cat hated me from the get-go. Like after the first, I just tried to pet this cat and be nice to this cat, But this cat, I must have done something wrong because this cat first started peeing on my laundry and then it started leaving me these poopy presents on my carpet in my room. And then it graduated up to now every time that I left my room, anytime I left my door open, anytime, the cat would run in my room and pee on my bed, pee on my pillow, on my sheets. And it was terrible. It was terrible. Um, Even the cat would even, if I had friends come over, somehow the cat knew my friends because when my friends would come over and leave their bags and coats on the ground, you know, next to the door, the cat would go pee on their stuff as well. This cat hated my guts. And uh, it even caused this rift between me and Greg, because it's kind of awkward when your cat keeps peeing on your friend's roommate's stuff. Like, who, who's faulted? I don't know. It, it caused a lot of problems. So then a few months later, I was talking with Greg. We were having this conversation, and it all kind of clicked together that actually this was all my fault. I'll tell you why. Okay, so flashback. These are flashback hands. Flashback. A few years earlier, two years earlier, I was living with some other friends of friends in another house, like out out in the woods. And one winter night, I was sitting in the living room. I was minding my own business. And I heard this meowing coming from outside of the window. And this cat was luring me outside to give it some food. And at the time, I was like, okay, this is kind of fun. So I gave a, put a can of tuna fish out there. The cat liked it, kept coming back, and it was kind of like a Dances with Wolves kind of, you know, that montage. The cat gets closer and closer, and then we pet it, and then my roommate got involved, and it became like our house cat. 
So um, after we all moved out from that house, my roommate actually took that cat and took it home with him. And here's where it gets interesting, because that cat that I befriended had kittens. And one of those kittens grew up and had kittens. And one of those kittens was given to my friend Greg. So the cat that Greg brought into the house two years later, you guessed it, it was the grand kitten of the cat that I had befriended and taken out, the stray cat. So the cat that, I, that was peeing all over my stuff, pooping in my room, causing this havoc, was all because of me, because I saved that cat. That, got, the cat, that cat had lured me outside to save it, and it was all my fault. And if I just let the, I just wanted to be like, dude, listen, you exist because of me. Stop doing this. Um, the cat had lured me outside that fateful winter night because it had lured, called me out there, and if I had not just gone out there, it would have spared me of all of this havoc in my life. Believe it or not, this is what James is talking about in James chapter 1. I think God let this happen to me so I'd have a good intro for what's happening here in this letter. Because James is talking about something very similar. James is telling his readers that when they give in to the lure of desire and temptation, they have no idea the consequences that are going to happen to them. Who knows when? Immediately or even years down the road. These effects of succumbing to the lure of desire and temptation— the effects ripple out into your life in these chaotic ways that ruin your life and even the lives of the people around you. And James does not want this to happen to you. He doesn't want it to happen to his original readers, and he doesn't want it to happen to us. So James has some good news for us here in this text when he's talking here about the trial of temptation. So the big idea for this text is in James chapter 12. We're not going to get into this text, that verse because we kind of talked about it last time. But the big idea is that we should remain steadfast in the trial of temptation. And toward this end of remaining steadfast, James gives us three things that we need to know in order to endure the trial of temptation so that we can be perfect and complete, not lacking anything, and more like Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So James wants us to know three things to help, to help us. The first point, our first point is going to be that God does not tempt us to sin. Uh, our second point is that our own desires actually tempt us to sin. And our third point is that God helps us in the trial of temptation. Look with me in verse 13 for our first point, that God does not tempt us to sin. James writes, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt, for God cannot be tempted, and God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, I wonder what comes into your mind when you think about the word, the temptation. What does that, what kind of connotations does that word bring up? Uh, probably at first, it brings up the idea of sexual temptation. That's the temptation to express yourself sexually with anyone that is not your spouse. And that's definitely something that's in view here in James. But that's only part of it because James is talking about any kind of enticement or wooing or luring to deliberately do or say or even, you know, meditate on, think on anything that God has said is not for us. That word uh, sin is literally means to miss the mark, to not do what God, to, to think about something, do something, say something that God has said we cannot do. And in fact, any situation in your life, you probably throughout the week, throughout the day, even this morning, we've all in some way been in this trial of temptation. We're tempted to 
gossip, we're tempted to slander, we're tempted to lash out in anger, to cheat, to covet, to overeat, to overdrink, to lie, to, to hoard up money and possessions. And the things that James has in this letter are kind of weird. He says, like, even the temptation to uh, favor the rich and the powerful over the weak and the powerless, that's even a sin, and we're tempted to even do that. According to James, there are two ways that we fundamentally can respond to temptation. The first is our first point, and the second one is our second point. The first way that we can respond when we're tempted toward these things, when we're lured by desire, is to say that it's God that is tempting me. God is the one who has put me in this temptation and is tempting me. Now, we all know, I think Christian or not, we all know what it feels like to be tempted. We'll get into this more in the next point, but you know the voice that says, do it. The voice that says, say that thing. They deserve it. You deserve it. No one's looking. It's not going to hurt anybody, and you're not even strong enough to withstand this temptation. Sometimes it can just, that voice can just be very loudly saying, give up, give in, do this thing. It's going to feel good. They deserve it. You deserve it. Now, this call, this, tem- this, this call could come from uh, the devil. It could come from the world. It could come from a person. And James here is, though, is zeroing in on that call from inside, this lure of temptation from inside of us. And James says when this is happening or after it's happened and you failed, um, don't blame God. There's no darkness in God. He's not going to be tempted to do this to you. Dar- his, this darkness can, the, he is no, there's no light in him. There's no darkness in him. There's no darkness in God. He doesn't play with evil. He cannot partake of evil. And he does, not, he does not want us to sin. He does not want us. He does not want to tempt us. He does not tempt us. Now, I think when I first read this text, and I think maybe you feel, might feel the same way, um, I don't think as Christians, I don't think maybe we've never acu- thought we've accused God of tempting us. Maybe nobody's ever actually said these words, so we think. We probably don't overtly think of God, you know, whispering in our ears, do it, do the bad thing. Like, we don't think of God doing that overtly. But think with me for a few moments. You know, the, the account of Adam in the garden in Genesis 3 is a great analogy and a great parallel for all the sin and temptation that we encounter. I'm going to read a little bit of Genesis chapter 3 and follow along with me. If you remember, this is the place where the serpent, Satan, deceives Eve. And we'll pick up right there in verse, chapter 3, verse 6. You guys might know the story. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So, Eve was deceived by Satan and she in turn gave the fruit to Adam, who apparently was right there with her the whole time watching this go on. I'm really curious what was going on with Adam there. Was he just waiting to see if, like, is Eve going to die before she eats that apple? If she does, I'm not going to eat it. But if she does, then I'm going to eat it. I don't know what's going on with, with Adam there. But he ate too. And what did Adam do when God came to him afterwards? Do you remember how that conversation went? Um, this is in verse 11. God asked Adam, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
And how did Adam respond? Where did he see this temptation as coming from ultimately? Whose fault was it in Adam's eyes? Look at the next verse, verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now, Adam isn't saying that it's God's fault, but he really totally actually is. <laughs> Where is Adam pointing his finger? First of all, he points his finger at Eve. It's her fault. Kill her. He's like shielding himself behind her. Kill her, not me. He thinks he points her the finger at Eve. But then, where did Eve come from? You guys remember where Eve came from? He says, the woman you gave me, God. She gave it to me, and then I ate. Now, to whom is Adam attributing his temptation? Adam is saying, you gave me this woman. You put this tempter in my life. The circumstances here that you set up for me, God, this is all your fault. This is not my fault. I was tempted by you, God. It's not my fault. This is your fault. Notice Adam, instead of asking for help in the trial, asking for help even after he failed, which we can always do, and he always helps us, instead, he blamed God for his temptation. So when James talks about blaming God for our temptation, and I think maybe James is even thinking about this text, he's talking about more than the idea of God whispering in your ear to do the bad thing. James is talking about how we can so easily see our circumstances in the midst of temptation or after we fall as if God is setting us up to be tempted. He's setting us up to fail and to fall. When we blame our circumstances or other people for our sins, we are ultimately, or temptation, we are ultimately accusing God. He's the one that ordains everything to happen. He's the one that ordains the family that we're in. Whenever we accuse, whenever we um, blame our circumstances, whatever they are, for our sin or temptation, that is blaming God. So whatever your spouse does to you, it's not a, it's not a reason to sin. Whatever your, a lot of us, a lot of y'all, were born into some really jacked up families. And it's really sad. But there's no occasion, there's no reason to sin. Whatever your sister or your brother does to you, there's no occasion, it's, it's no, whatever that situation is, it's no reason to sin. The boss that is over you, the job that, that was taken from you, the position that you didn't get, none of those are reasons to sin. None of those are reasons to sin. The, the candidate that didn't get uh, elected to office. That is not a reason to sin. There's not a reason to sin. You're saying that this is you tempting me, God, basically, in the end. It's good to be angry, and it's good to be sad. It's good to be frustrated. It's good to be discouraged. But in our anger, in your sadness, in your discouragement, in your frustration, we're not to sin. Instead, we're to ask him for help. Ask him for help. Draw near to him. Is there any place that you have been intentionally, or maybe you didn't even realize it until now, doing, uh, you're actually basically blaming God for your temptation, blaming God for your sin? James says, you, we are not tempted by God. These are places to draw near to God in our weakness, in our sadness, in our anger, in our frustration. And if you find yourself here in the future realizing that you have been blaming God for tempting you to sin. James helps us in our next section. He describes a better way to fundamentally think about our temptation. The second point James make, makes is the other fundamental way that we can view 
the trial of temptation. We would be wrong to accuse God of tempting us to sin. James says instead that we are to take responsibility when we are tempted. This is point two. Our own desires tempt us to sin. Look with me in verse 14. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. So here's how James views temptations, and this should resonate with us a little bit. This is what temptation looks like. This is what it feels like, and we're going to see what the consequences are too. Temptation is you being lured and enticed. These two words, lured and enticed, are from the world of hunting and fishing. You're getting lured. You're like this fish that's being attracted and seduced by this big green neon worm that just happened to plop right there in the water right in front of you. And in this verse, desire is the one that is doing the luring. It's saying, hey, look at this. Doesn't this look nice? Come in and get a little bit of that sweet, sweet feeling when you share some gossip or hear some gossip. That's that a great feeling when you hit your sister back for what she did. Look again at that man. You know that heady feeling you get? get just give another glance at that man, to that woman. You deserve that heady rush that you get. That's the, sound, that's the voice of desire. Now notice that at this point, the bait is dropped. The fish sees it. You're the fish, I guess, here. And the desire is saying, hey, check this out. Come out of your safe spot, out of the rocks, and come get this thing. But notice at this point that sin, at this point in our text, sin has not entered the picture. That's in the next verse. Sin has actually not entered the picture yet. So one thing I just want to point out here is that at least as James sees it here in this text, being tempted is not a sin. There is a sense in which, because it is our desire in the end, so there is a sense in which it's our responsibility and we are kind of guilty for that desire. But in another sense, as James says here, it's possible to experience profound temptation to sin and to endure through it. And, when we, and then when we do, we give all the thanks and all the glory to God for helping us. But when, we, but when we yield to desire, when we give in to desire and do what it says, that is when sin is begotten and birthed. Hold on to your seats. This is going to get a little crazy here in the text in James. If you ever read this closely, look at verse 15. He says that, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So it's at this point when desire gets you and you're hooked and you're caught, and the result of desire getting what it wants from you is a child. It's a little baby named sin. That little baby named sin is birthed between you and desire. This is wild. So if, you, if this is too much for you, just think about the cats from earlier, okay? So, so then James goes on. He says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, okay? And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is like a horror movie in three acts. So the first act is this. Listen, you succumb to desire, and your child's name is sin. That's act one. Act two Sin grow, your sin grows up, it gets mature, and at this point, it's out of your hands. Like maybe you thought you could keep the consequences of your sin small and keep it in a little cage or something, but sin grows up and it starts wreaking havoc. That's act two. Act three, sin is now out on the town making its own offspring all over town <laughs> and it's completely out of your control. And there's all kinds of death that's coming. There's um, physical death, maybe, there's career death, there's spiritual death, um, there's relational death. Think of all the relational death that comes 
friends, with your friends, with your children, with your parents, with your siblings. There's even eternal death for those who have not trusted in Jesus. And you've got no control. It's death, it's decay, it's brokenness everywhere, just spreading out all around you. Now this doesn't, remember, this doesn't happen from just, ha- from just having desire, but as soon as you cross that line, as soon as you yield to it, then sin has been conceived, and you have no idea the disastrous results that are going to be coming. Now listen, God has, prom- God has promised that if you trust in Jesus, all of your sins are forgiven, and we will be with Jesus forever in total blessedness when we die or when, when he returns. But he does not promise that we are not going to have consequences from our sin in this life. He does not promise that there are not going to be natural results for the things that we do here on earth. Think, for example, even if, it's, um, even if somehow a Christian does this, if someone commits adultery, what far-reaching effects that has on the person that they sinned against, the, their spouse, one that they commit adultery with, their children, and their children, and their children. <laughs> I think uh, I did this, like, genogram. Have you, guys, have you guys ever heard of a genogram? You can see these places in your, back in your family tree where there's some kind of bombshell went off. Somebody did something terrible to someone else or someone did something terrible and the ripple effects that it has on generations below. And I'm sure we all have these bombshells back in our family trees that are still affecting you. Think about how gossiping and how slandering Another person, it poison into the ear of your talking to, that you're talking to. It ruins the reputation of the person you're talking about, and your reputation is also ruined. Nobody likes gossips. They like the stuff you give. They like the gossip they hear from you. They don't like you, though. They know you're going to just gossip about them, right? And you can just think about the immediate effects that someone else's sin has wrought on your own life. This is the consequences of sin all around that you have no control over once we yield to it. If you have some place in your life where you're being tempted right now, or maybe you've even fallen and failed. Think about what the results could be immediately, um, next year, years from now, or even generations from now, if you yield to desire and temptation. Don't be deceived, my brothers, is what James says here. Don't lead yourself astray. Don't get tricked into blaming God and enduring this trial. God is not tempting you to sin. Your circumstances don't dictate what you should do. What is tempting you to sin is your own desires. And once we understand that, we can start to hear what James has for us next. This is our last point, that God helps us, helps you in your trial of temptation. And there are two things that James wants us to know. One thing about God and one thing about ourselves in the verses that follow. Look at verse 17. He wants to know something about God. Every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What James is ba- basically saying here is that God is good all the time. He, ne- he never changes. He's never tempted. He is always for your good. There is no variation in God. If you trust in Jesus, then God's regard for you never changes. He is always good and he's always giving you good things all the time. A few months ago, my wife and I were talking with a student who said that he felt like he always had to be perfect for God. There was this constant 
anxiety that he had to have it all together and do all these things or else God was going to somehow change and God was going to bring this calamitous punishment on him if he didn't meet up to God's standards. And so this student gave up following God. And my response to that is, good, don't follow that God. That is not the God that, J- that James is describing here. That's not a good father giving gifts to his children all the time. That sounds like more like an abusive father or a Satan. <laughs> God the Father never changes in his goodness to his people. The reason that this God never changes in doing good for his children is not because you endure temptation or don't endure temptation. It's not because you have it all together or don't. It's not because you do things for him or you don't. The dimmer switch of his love for you is always 100%. That's how I thought of it one time. If God's love is a dimmer switch, (coughs) it's 100% on all the time for you, even when you are at your worst, even when you did the thing you never thought that temptation would lead you to do. And you can know this because he sent his son Jesus to die for you. He sent his son Jesus while you were an enemy, while you were wallowing in your own results of, of your sin. He sent his son to die for you while you were an enemy. And Jesus, he was tempted. You know, Jesus was tempted like we are, but he never sinned. He always trusted his father. He never blamed his father and sinned. He never blamed his circumstances and sinned. And he, Jesus, actually deserves the Father's love. We don't. And if you trust him, then you are united to him. And when Jesus died on the cross, that means if you're united to him and you trust him, that he took, he took the punishment for your sin. And that righteous record that he has from God, he gives it to you. You share in it with him because you're united to him. And that means that when God looks on you, he sees God, he sees Jesus's perfect record on you. And that never changes. Jesus never changes. So you know that his regard, first of all, he sent his son for you while you were a sinner. Secondly, he, when he, when God sees you, he sees you in Christ. He sees us as perfect because Christ won it for us. He came to fix the problem that we started, the problem that we made. So if you don't know if God loves you unreservedly or you're starting to think, does God love me? I just did this. Don't be deceived. Don't look to your sins to know if God loves you. Don't look to your good works to know if God loves you. Don't look even to your faith to know if God loves you. Look to Jesus, the one that that unites himself to us, that lived a perfect life for us, that took our sins for us. He's united himself to us. And since Jesus never changes, the Father's love to us never will. This is the kind of God that James wants us to remember, to know, to take this to heart in our temptations. But James also wants us to remember something about us. Look at the last verse here. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Now, what does this text say about us? It's kind of weird, but it says, of God's own will, that means it's his decision, he brought us forth. We've just been talking about this demon baby brought out from desire. God, that's what desire brings forth. God brings forth what? Us. He bears us like a baby. He bears us like a baby. And it's all his decision. This is James' way of saying that 
when you heard the gospel message, that's the word of truth here, the gospel, the good news about faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, he says, you know, we, what happens is you hear this message from a friend, you hear this message from parents, you hear this message from a sermon, sermons or the Bible, and you believe because God brought you forth. You were dead, and then God made you alive. You've ever heard the expression being born again? This is what this is talking about. You're spiritually dead and cut off from God, but God comes and makes you alive so that you can trust in Jesus and trust in what God has done. And when you're born again, you're spiritually, you're alive now. You're a new creation. You're a new creature. And God, we're a new creature that's made to serve and love God. This is who you are. You have been made, remade to serve and love God. And he did this so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We are the best. We are his prized ones. God is making the whole world new. And we, the church, believe it or not, we are the ones that are the first fruits of this new creation that God is creating. He saved us to be a kind of first fruits. What James is saying here is <clears throat> be yourself. That's why the title of the sermon is Be Yourself. Be yourself. Remember who you are. You're not a slave to sin. Listen, you are not a rebel to God. If you trust in Christ, you are not a rebel to God, and you are not a slave to sin. You are united to Christ. You are made new. You, are, you have been changed and are being changed from the inside out. You're a new creation. So that when you're in the midst of temptation to lie or to cheat or to uh, lash out in anger, <clears throat> you can say, listen, say to yourself, this is not who I am. I am not a liar. I am not a cheater. I am not an adulterer. I am not a gossip or a slanderer. That's not who I am. That is not my nature. I've been born by the will of God, and I've been born again, born from above, and I'm dead to sin. I don't like it. Remind myself, oh yeah, I don't like that. That's not who I am. The more we remember and know who God is and then who we are in the midst of temptation, this is what one, one of the ways that James is giving us to endure the trial of temptation while we are in it. One, fi one final encouragement here. The trial of temptation, even itself, is a gift. Do you know um, what happens when you endure a trial of temptation? You become more like Christ. You become more mature. You become gentler and kinder and all these things that, that God has for us. But you know what happens when you don't endure and you fail? The trial, even if it leads to sin, is still meant to be a gift. The gift is showing us our need of the gospel. It's a call, of faith in, call to faith in Jesus Christ and the good news that says that there is grace even for those who fail in the trial of temptation. Grace is for sinners. That's what grace is for. It's not for good people. It's for people that fail. God is good, and he loves his people even this much. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, even, thank you for the trial of temptation. Would you make us, when, we, when, we, when it comes to us, when we meet it, to trust in you and what you're doing in us and for us. And we thank you so much for Jesus who has lived and died for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.